Welcome. We are so glad you've joined us today. Are you ready for another Bayside Christian Church podcast? Let's get straight into it. So I hope um I hope my heart came through in that first session. I'm I'm here to help. Um, I'm trying to. Um, I wanted to do something. My fear was is that it might have been too much. But I, after getting feedback, I don't think it was. It's it this. These are things that pastors at a very local level have to deal with because your 23 year olds have never known a day without Google, and that changes the conversation quite a lot. And so what I'm trying to do is instead of going, well, this is a problem, this problem, this problem, I'm trying to identify the problem, own it, and then say, well, what if we, what if we have this way, what if we have this way forward? So, so just as a review, uh, to, to speak of the scripture the most meaningful way, it's not less truthful if you just focus on the literal. It's not. It's just less meaningful, right? It's not less truthful if you only focus on the meaning. It's just less meaningful. It's not less truthful if you only focus on the evental. It's just less meaningful. Meaningful truth is best discussed when all three are examined. And it's not just examining it. It's not just the doctrine. It's the imagination of how that doctrine works. As communicators, just try this for the next 30 days. Instead of talking about doctrine, focus almost entirely on how people think about that. It's not what we believe. It's how we believe what we believe. Even if you have a crazy belief, even if you say, oh, I think God's a nine-sided cube and the current Antichrist is an eight-year-old Chinese boy named Tong Nguyen. Whatever. If I said, if, if, if I said, so what? And you went, well, that just moves me to connect my world to the compassion of Christ. I, amen, right? And so, and so it's, it's not so much about the doctrine. It's the imagination of how that doctrine works because your emotions and your behavior will be determined by how you see the thing working, not just the thing, right? And so let's, let, let's, let's talk about this. If you could bring up that slide that says oneness and sameness. See, the, the, the Bible affirms oneness quite radically, actually. I, I think more radically than, we th- than we're ready for. Like, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, real, are we really ready to have that discussion? I, I, think, I think there's a, a, an affirmation of radical oneness. R- remember, r- remember when Paul, when he went through an exercise trying to figure out where Christ isn't? Remember? And he's like, he finally just throws his hands up in the air and he's like, you know what? I've just come to the conclusion that the spirit of the risen Christ is filling everything in every way. He is all in all, and in him all things are created, and in him all things hold together. In other words, to Paul, if you can look at someone and not see Christ at work in them, it's you. you you got to change the way you're seeing. Even if it's under another label, Christ is at work in that person. If that person's breathing air, Christ is at work in them. And not just that, all of creation. Actually, quite literally, um, um, you know, evidently to Paul's theology, the chair you're sitting on would disintegrate if Christ isn't holding it together. See, I, I think part of the problem is, is that we tend to talk about God in big terms, and that's not wrong, right? So, so we go, God's so big, God's so big, God's so big. Look at the universe. Wow, God's so big, and amen. But I think we need to spend a, a, the same amount of time talking about how small God is. That, 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 if, that if God is big, I, I, was, I was leading a, a New South Wales women's conference uh, two weeks ago, and they asked me to lead communion. And they wanted me to do it. They, they said, this, no pressure. They said, uh, do it in a Shane Willard unique way, right? Okay. So, so I thought about it for a second. I thought, okay, here's what I'm going to do, right? So they were holding the wafer. And it hit me that if Christ is all and is in all things, that the same Christ that's holding the whole universe together is also 
present in that wafer. It's actually literally holding the whole thing together. So that in one sense, God is infinitely big, but he's small enough to care about the nourishment just for your belly. And, and if that's true, and I'm eating bread and drinking juice, and you're eating bread and drinking juice, then if you're worth $20 million, one bread, one juice. If you're broke, one bread, one juice. If you're black, one bread, one juice. If you're white, one bread, one juice. If you're, if you're Asian, one bread, one juice. If you're Scandinavian, one bread, one juice. That actually the Eucharist or the communion should be reminding us that God is infinitely small. And because he's infinitely small, there's not one dime's difference between me and you. The, the, the philosophical word for this is ground of being, that God is the ground of being. In other words, if, it, if it's in existence, God is holding it together. And, and here, that, that's the literal. Here's the meaning of that. What that means is, in the eventual application of that is this, is if there's only one God, and I think we're all together on that, if there's only one God, and that God is holding everything together, then I can't possibly purposely harm you without expecting to harm myself because I'm coming against the thing that's holding the whole thing together. Right? So lead, that, that, that concept should lead us to kindness. They, they've actually proven this scientifically. Um, they don't use spiritual language around it, but they, they call it quantum entanglement. And, and they can't explain it. They can just tell you it is, right? They've observed it under big enough magnification. This is so crazy, right? Here's what, here's what it says. That if I get close enough to you, right, my subatomic particles, things smaller than electrons, inexplicably jump into you, right? Like, do you feel that? See, I'm in you, right? 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 So... So, and, and, and your subatomic particles jump into me, right? Now, this is where it matters. If I'm cruel to you, if I tell you you don't matter, you're ugly, you're stupid, you're whatever, right? When I walk away, my subatomic particles jump back into me, but they're wounded because they got wounded when they were in you and I hurt you. But if I build you up and encourage you and give you confidence and tell you you're loved, when I walk away, when my subatomic particles jump back into me, they come back edified. You could call that sowing and reaping. You can call it whatever you want. But, but you can call it quantum entanglement. You can call it whatever you want. But, but it, the, the big word for that would be oneness or God is the ground of being, that God is holding the whole thing together. Now, here's the problem with oneness. Everyone is for oneness. No one is like, no, we need more disunity. Nobody. Nobody would say that, right? Doctrinally, we're all for oneness. Here's the problem. If when we say oneness, we imagine sameness, it's a problem. The Bible affirms oneness quite radically, actually, really radically. But it does not expect sameness. That there's no expectation of sameness at all. Actually, this requires humility. See, see Christianity, let, let me say it this way. All knowing about God or all naming about God must be instantly coupled with denaming, or we create an idol in our own image. Like, so in that sense, when we say God, we just talk about ourselves with a giant megaphone. We're just talking about ourselves in all caps with an exclamation point, right? So even if we say something obvious like, God is love, true or not true? True. But we have to instantly then say, but not my concept of love. It's got to be bigger than my concept of love. It's got to encapsulate a third century Spanish peasant's concept of love, a 16th century Swiss monk's concept of love. It's, it's got to encapsulate all those concepts of love because if I say God is love, naming it, 
without denaming it, I'll make my concept of love God. And then before I know it, when I say God, I'm just talking about myself with a giant megaphone, right? Or if I say God's a father, true or not true? True, but I have to instantly couple that with denaming, but not my concept of father. It, it, it's it's got to be bigger than my concept of father. That, that, that Christianity lives in the tension between the naming and the denaming. And this is the problem your children are having, but they don't know how to say it. When there's too much naming and not an equal amount of humble denaming, it's subtly idolatry, right? And your children know my, the concept of God I was given has got to be bigger than that. And then they don't have language, so they go, I'm not that, right? Like, have you ever talked to an atheist? I have never yet talked to an atheist I disagreed with, not personally. Like someone willing to have a cup of coffee with me, and I go, tell me what it is an atheist, tell me, tell me what it is an atheist is. And they go, oh, well, I don't think God is this, 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 or this. And so an atheist spends most of their time denaming. I don't think God is this, 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 or this. And I just go, well, I don't think that either. Is, is that what an atheist is? Yes, then I must be an atheist. Because I don't think God is that either. And what I found with the atheists that were willing to talk with me is they're not resisting the actual God. They're resisting the image of God that was presented to them with too much naming and not enough denaming. This is why, this is why we're so bored. If, if an atheist, if a, if a theist debates an atheist and the theist goes, God is this, 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 and this. And the atheist goes, God is not this, 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 and this, right? Boring. Why? Because Christianity lives in the tension between both those things, the naming and the denaming. Interesting, you belong to a denomination. Denom, the root word denom is a group of people who dename, right? So what, what denominations were supposed to be, were, they were supposed to be the ones affirming the denaming, but what we've become is rigid namers, which just creates another culture of in and out, us and them. And that goes against the oneness. So we, we, we say oneness, but what we mean is sameness. And anyone not like us is not same. And then we say they're not one. But wait a minute, we, we, affirm, we, we affirm oneness. And, the, and the, what, what sabotages the thing is too much naming and not enough denaming. While we're on that, um, too much Jesus is God is a problem. And let me explain what I mean. I affirm the divinity of Christ, okay? And so do you. And we should embrace that heavily. But we also affirm that he was fully human. And too much, too much Jesus is God without enough focus on Jesus' humanity makes it difficult for people to form how he taught us to live in their lives. Like if we say, Jesus asked you to forgive your enemies, you could easily go, yeah, but he's God. I'm not God. Only God could do that. Wait a minute. No, no, he was fully man as well right? And so we have to name and we have to dename. We have to, we have to listen to both sides and affirm both sides of, of the narrative. Oneness, yes. Sameness, no. You have to do mental hula hoops to say Solomon and Paul agreed on marriage. They absolutely did not. Solomon was very for it. Sol Paul was very not for it. He's like, he who marries does not sin, but he signed up for a life of pain, right? Solomon's like, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Well, who's telling the truth there? Both of them. But oneness is not sameness. You'd have to do mental hula hoops to say the writer of Hebrews agreed with Moses. When the whole point of Hebrews is that the revelation of Jesus was better than Moses' revelation. You can't make those two things agree. You'd have to do mental hula hoops to say Micah agreed with Moses. 
Micah's like, who told you you needed to sacrifice animals? Just do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Like, right? They killed Micah, only to realize later he was onto something. Je- Jesus, <laughs> Jesus points that out in Matthew 23. He says, you who stoned the prophets. In other words, the, the, ones, the ones whose ideas about God are too far advanced, you kill them only to realize 100 years later they're probably onto something, <laughs> right? You're fixing to kill me. It's just going to be, right? So it's, it's, it's this kind of thing. So, so let's, let's then examine personal growth. Let me say something that should be obvious, right? But maybe it's not. If you haven't read something in the last five years that you disagreed with and caused you to be uncomfortable and you had to wrestle with it, you can't grow. Like I, I had a pastor ask me, this year. Shane, tell me what my biggest weakness is. And he's a good friend of mine. I hated that. I was like, can we just put on a game? Like, I don't want to talk to you about your weaknesses. It could get awkward, you know? He said, no, I'm serious. I trust you. Why don't you tell me what you see as my biggest weakness? So I rolled my eyes and I said, what's the last five books you've read? He said, are you saying I don't read? I said, okay, we can add insecurity to the list. <laughs> No, I'm asking what's the last five books you read? And he told me, and they were all books from his tribe. And he would have closed every single one of them and said amen and been encouraged and uplifted in his spirit. And that's good, but none of them would have stretched him at all, right? And that's the thing. I, to be honest, I should probably read more books from his tribe because that's not my tribe. So I should probably read things that stretch, their books would stretch me and I should probably, I should probably do that. So, so let's examine how people grow. And, and, and given everything that we just talked about, uh, hit the next one and then the next one because we've already talked about the other one. Yep, and then, yep. So since we're all one, but not the same, how we navigate diverse facets with others matter great, greatly. Like, I've tried to come up with language for this and I hope this is being helpful, right? So how do we process difference while honoring oneness? That's actually how personal growth works. We process difference and honor oneness with, without expecting sameness, right? Because remember, if someone understands one one-thousandth of what God is, and it just happens to be different than your one one-thousandth, if we just humble ourselves and listen to them, we might actually leave better, right? So let, let's say it this way. Next slide. This is, um, this is the encouraging part. They dealt with this in the scripture. Like these good people, they dealt with these same things. This is what it says. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, I don't care how you read that. That's an insult. Bunch of babies, bunch of flipping babies, right? I fed you with milk, not solid food. That, that'd be like showing up at dinner and everybody else gets solid food and you get this bowl of soup because you can't handle it. I, it's just, it would be so insulting. For you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. For you're still of the flesh. Now watch Paul's definition of what it means to be fleshly. You would think it'd be idolatry or some sort of immorality. Uh-uh, watch this. For while there's jealousy and strife amongst you, are you not merely of the flesh? So let's just stop and wrestle with that for a second. Is there jealousy and strife amongst us in this room? I've traveled the whole of the world, primarily in churches, and jealousy and strife abounds. And actually, envy is the movement destroyer. Here's the reason why. The way envy works is normally reasonable people can rationalize doing violence to somebody. And so, so we actually secretly celebrate when someone bigger than us falls down because, oh, if we had their budget, if we had their talent, oh, then we're stuck out here, right, right? Flesh, flesh, right? Nick, keep going. Next slide. For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, so you're not merely acting human. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? 
servants to whom you believed. And the Lord assigned each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. Oneness, but not sameness. Like I, it, it took me a long time to get comfortable in my teacher's skin. I, I was told early on, you're a good teacher, but you're not a good preacher. You better become a good preacher. You won't make it, right? So I tried. I said, who's a good preacher? They said, Rod Parsley. So I went and listened to all kinds of Rod Parsley stuff, and I tried to mimic his style. It was dreadful. It was just shocking. And, and not that Rod Parsley's bad. It's just Rod Parsley's Rod Parsley. I'm me, and, and I got I, I to gotta be comfortable in, in, in that. Um, so neither he who plants or he who waters is anything. That's a big statement. But only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. One, but not same. And each will receive his wages according to their labor. For we are God's fellow workers, God's field, God's building. So let me see if I can explore this with some language. Because once, once again, saying obvious stuff without language is frustrating. So let's, let's see if we put language to it. So the one serving Jesus is an interpreter of Jesus, but not God himself. And that is a subtle line that we all flirt with. R- Richard Rohr makes the point. He says that the highest percentage of narcissists in the world are priests. Now he could say that because he's a priest, okay? He's not talking about people. He's talking about himself. He said, think about it. We're called father. We're seen as the answer person. We're seen as the conduit to God. How are we not supposed to have an inflated ego given all of these things, right? And so, but, so there's, a, there's a subtle line between the one serving Jesus and being God himself. So, so, so there's a subtle line between interpretation of the master and being seen as the master. So, so here, here's how I'd like to say it. We have to take our task of interpreting the master very seriously without taking ourselves that seriously. So... And that's just something we'll never conquer, like, like in terms of, okay, I'm done now. It's, it's something that we'd wrestle with every Sunday, or for me today, right? So I, if you haven't noticed, I put a lot of effort into this talk, okay? A lot of study, a lot of research, a lot of brainstorming about how to word things. This is not easy, right? So I, I took my task today incredibly seriously. But if I ever cross the line into taking myself that seriously, now when I say God, I'm just speaking of myself with a giant megaphone. And and the way we can know we cross that line is if we get too offended when people push back, right? Like it's like, wait a minute. Okay. I'm just, maybe, maybe you have a point, you know, maybe maybe I could hear you out. Like, I I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't know. Here, let's, let's see if I could go another way. Next slide. Um, so the one working and watering brings all their energy into their interpretation in order to be effective. But then we must hand it over and leave all the results to the master. And that's the hard part, right? How do I take my test seriously without taking myself seriously? And here's, here's one tool to help us do that. To make sure that we do not become a manipulator of result. Because that's my litmus test. I know when two things happen, I've crossed the line, right? And that is when I feel internally jealous about someone who's seemingly succeeding more than me, right? I know I've crossed the line, okay? And and look, and well-meaning people, they mean well, but they don't help us with that. You know, somebody comes, they think they're complimenting me, but they'll go, how come you haven't preached at that big conference? You're better than the one I just heard there. They're giving me a compliment. But what that does for me is if, if I've crossed the line is I could go, yeah. Yeah, why is God promoting that person and not me? I am, I, I am a better speaker than them. I say smarter stuff, right? They're just very basic. Actually, they make no flipping sense. They just say it in rhythm, right? If you had somebody, if you had somebody type out everything they said and you handed it to an intelligent person and you remove the rhythm, the intelligent person would be like, what is this, Right? 
And so, and so I know when I can't celebrate God's gift on their life, I've crossed the line myself, right? And I do that. I, I don't mind admitting that. I, don't, I, I think anybody who claims they've got total victory on that, I'm not lying. So, so I, 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 I do that. It, it is getting better. But I know I have these internal markers now. When any, anytime I would secretly celebrate if one of those guys fell over, that's a problem. Because it doesn't honor oneness. It doesn't honor the ground of being, right? So I could take, the other thing, I, this is how I know, and this happens to me when I get tired. When, I know when I get tired. When I get tired, I get very flippant articulate. Like, if, if, somebody, if somebody annoys me, and it's not their fault, it's just I'm tired. I can, I can border on, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I've never been a cruel person, I'm not that. It's just, I can be real, I, I, can, I can feel it. I, I know I've crossed the line. And, and here's what happens, when I get tired, I can start to be ego-driven, and, and what I mean by that is, is, is I don't leave the results to God, so I manipulate the results so I'll feel better about my effort, right? And that's, that's, that's where we cross the line, because here's the thing, right? If I could, man, this set me free, if I could set you free by being honest, authentic, and open, and I, I'm being pretty vulnerable here, right? That's okay. 20% of the world's starving. I don't mind that your phone accidentally went off. It's okay. Um, we, how can I say this? We, when we become manipulators of the result to stroke our own ego, and we all do that at times, then it becomes, it becomes a real problem. This, oh my goodness. Remember, there's this one story in the Gospels, I can't give you the reference, but you'll know it's there. Where Jesus is preaching to 5,000 people, which is just a Jewish way of saying a lot, right? No one was going one, two, three, four, right, right. And it's, it's the most disastrous preaching moment of Jesus' whole life. He's preaching to 5,000 people. And it says, everyone walked out. Now that is bad. 5,000 people, and they all walk out of your message, right? And Jesus turns to the 12 and says, are you going to leave me too? And they go, uh, no, but um, we don't mean to be Johnny Raincloud here, but they didn't buy what you were selling, right? And Jesus says, I know, I know. But if my father hasn't prepared their hearts to hear it, what hope do I have to convince them? Now, that is Jesus Christ talking, right? And it hit me. If Jesus, if Jesus Christ walking in human flesh did not see himself as the agent of conviction, but rather a cooperator with what God is doing in people's hearts, how much more should I? That I should never feel a failure if someone doesn't respond. My task is to take my task seriously and leave all the results and all the fruit with God. Because God... My task is nothing. It's God that gives the growth, right? Right? So, so let's say it this way. Next slide. One person plants and one person waters, but only God makes it grow. Now, this, this requires profound trust and ego work. If we find too much of our ego in people's response, that is awesome if they're responding. But it is a fragility that we don't, I don't think we want to flirt with. It requires us to find something in somebody else. Let's say it this way. None of us had the first word and none of us will have the last word. And the tension in the middle will determine how well we handle differences. If we put too much ego in our conclusion, we'll never hear somebody out. And here's the thing. And this sounds like I'm making a joke. I promise you before God, I'm not making a joke. 
I was writing a series through Philippians, and there's this line. I did probably 25 messages through Philippians. And there's this line in there that says, do all things without grumbling or disputing with one another. I got so convicted by that that I made a decision, and I've kept this decision. Last February, I made a decision to fast for 365 days from arguing about the Bible. And let me define what an argument is, because I've had infinite discussions about the Bible. But an argument is any conversation where somebody starts with their conclusion. If someone starts with their conclusion, you are by definition having a dispute, okay? And here's the thing. I'm 43 years old, and I'm at least of average intelligence. I have never been able one time to convince someone to shift if they started with their conclusion. If they start with their conclusion, then that's the conclusion. And I can't tell you how much time it saved me in my life. If someone starts with their conclusion, I just go, amen. Amen. Hey, hey. amen. No worries. No worries. Is Jesus the Christ? He was crucified. The resurrection is true. Yep. Then you're my brother. You're my sister. I don't care what you think about Genesis 1, Genesis 6. I don't care if you think Jonah was a parable or he actually got swallowed, whatever. I, I don't, listen, it, none of that, none of that, if you're starting with your conclusion, then you can have your conclusion because none of us have the first word and none of us have the last word. And if God hasn't started moving on someone's heart, trying to insert ourselves as the agent of conviction is a bad idea. It's just a bad idea. Next slide, let's say it this way. How often does Jesus ask his disciples or audience, what do you think? Or how do you read it? Now, this is Jesus Christ and on some big topics too. Go back, look at all four gospels and ask yourself this question. How many different ways does Jesus answer the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, something as big as eternal life, you'd, th you'd be thinking, come on, give us the one answer. Nope, one answer. Nope, nope. Jesus met people where they thought he was. And then he enters into what they think meaning is, and he shifts it. If you've tuned out, tune back in, because this helped me so much. What I see in scripture is that God tends to be humble enough to meet people where they think he is, right? Now that has huge implications for how we lead. If God is humble enough to meet people where they think he is and then enter into that and shift them, then how much more should we? I'll give you an example, right? In Abraham's world, they thought that you had to kill, you had to kill children to get rain. You guys just prayed for rain. They would have thought in ancient Sumeria you had to kill a child to get it to rain, right? That was Abraham's world. How does God introduce himself to Abraham? He says, hi, I want you to kill your kid. Why? Because that's what Abraham's world thought, right? And then God enters into that experience, and he says, you know what? I got an idea. Let's kill animals instead. That'd be better, right? Now, when you're the first person to get the idea, let's kill animals instead of kids, is that a good move or a bad move? It's a pretty good flipping move. Is that a word from God? Yes. Is that the final word of God? No, the final word of God's the risen Christ. But that is a giant leap in the right direction right? And what you see in that story is God meeting Abraham where Abraham thought he was, entering into what Abraham thought meaning was, and busting it wide open. Years later, a guy named Moses shows up. Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household. He was taught that the sun was God. No tricks. What's the sun made of? Fire. He thought God was a fire that consumes things that anger him. So Moses thinks God's a fire. How does God show up to Moses? A fire, but a different sort of fire, a fire that doesn't consume even the most flammable thing in the wilderness. 
a burning bush. As the great T.S. Eliot wrote, we only sustain, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire, that we will live our whole life terrified of the consuming fire of God, or by faith we'll be able to embrace the character of a loving God that although it will perfect us, it will not harm us, for the bush was not consumed. <laughs> right? So what you see in that story is that God meets Moses where Moses thinks it. You think I'm a fire? I'll be a fire. That's fine. Another place he shows up as a rock, which leads to all kinds of questions like, can God ever be a rock in the desert? And if he can be a rock in the desert, what else could he be? Oh, in Jesus' day, who did the whole world think God was? Caesar. So the whole world thought God was a man. So God's like, you think I'm a man? I'll come as a man, no problem. And I'll enter into what you think it is and bust it wide open. What you find is, is that God is humble enough to meet people where they think he is and then shift them slowly. What should that teach us about our style? We should be listeners of people. And when we figure out where they think God is, we should meet them right there. Not for the goal of leaving them there, but for the goal of, of journeying with them, right? It's not a matter of instant results. It just doesn't work. Apparently the vision Jesus had was a movement that allowed for diversity in the simple as well as the profound. That it's oneness with no expectation of sameness. And that's actually my biggest challenge in the world. I, I preach for everybody. And in a digital world where things get posted, I have to watch myself, especially in Q&As, right? Like I'm doing the Seventh-day Adventist, uh, Seventh Adventist conference in, in a few weeks. And then the next day I'm with Mark Varghese. Right? Now, now, how do I honor both those? What do I do? You know? And if, if I'm in a Q&A in Melbourne and they're going to post it, and someone says, this actually happened. Shane, what happens after you die? Well, I can't give one answer because I preach for all of them. And so what I have to do now is I have to say, fully devoted followers of Christ have about six different ideas on this. I'm going to give you all six without giving away what I think, and then you can wrestle with it, right? But, you know, because it's, it's just a truth. So if somebody says, is Genesis 1 literal? I just say, well, there's three ways. Fully devoted followers of Christ see Genesis 1 three different ways. One is literal history, and I have friends that see it that way, and I preach for them, and I would never divide over that. The second way is as ancient Mesopotamian poetry exalting the power of Jehovah over the Babylonian high god Marduk and Tiamat as revealed in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Epic of Atrahasis, and the Enumalish. The, the third way is as wisdom literature, and the fourth way is a hybrid between two and three. And so, and actually, we should never be people who divide over differences in stuff like that. We should be able to celebrate oneness without expecting sameness because there's one God, right? And so you have to be able to, you have to be able to do, like, let's say it this way, next slide. To set a table the whole world can experience the risen Christ requires the interpreter's ability to embrace difference. In the first century, there's Paul, Apollos, Peter, James, John, all who are interpreting the master a little bit differently. You have to do intellectual who loops to say Paul and James agreed with one another. There's no way. There's no way. But they honored the oneness between them. Let's say it this way. Next slide. See, all the difference is simply a part of it as long as these three things are true. That God is the ground of being, so let's settle that. Like, as pastors, we would agree there's only one God, and that one God is holding all things together, okay? 
that Jesus is the face of God and at the center. In other words, of the Trinity, Jesus is the one we can see, observe, read about, understand. We can see how he interacted with people. The, the Father, you don't really know. The, 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 the Spirit, you know, the, the, Jesus is the, in, is the embodiment of how the other two would live in this world, right? And that's what we can see. And, and third, the finished work of Christ is what unites us, right? So God is the ground of being. Jesus is the face of God and at the center, and the finished work of Christ is what unites us. As long as those three things are true, then all the difference is simply a part of it. And, and it should be something that helps us grow. Next slide. See, people have asked me, how do you preach for them when they say this? And I'm going, wait a minute. Are they, like I do a seven-day Adventist thing. They love me for some reason. They keep asking me back. Now, I don't go in there and irritate them. I meet them where they are and honor them. And, and, and we talk about the love of Christ. And, it's, and it, I have a brilliant time with them. They, they, they teach me how to eat vegan food, right? They're actually quite good at cooking it. Um, and, and, and I got to say, because of my interactions with, with the Seventh-day Adventists that I've become friends with, I'm a better person because of their influence in my life, right? But I've never, th- like I, one of my best friends is Mike Connell. And Mike Connell's a real power sort of fire like like real like deliverance you know like and he's the best in the world at it and he's one of my best friends you know and somebody asked me the other day they said how do you cope with Mike Connell you don't agree you wouldn't agree with him and he wouldn't agree with you so I was with Mike he's a good friend and I said I said Mike this guy asked me today how we cope with each other when we don't agree with each other and um and Mike went what he said you know what until right now I've never considered once whether I agreed with you or not I said me neither he said, I just honor the gift of God on your life. I know you love God. And just because you're a little different than me, I just find that enhancing to my life. I, don't, I never agree with you. Like, really? See, any institution that doesn't allow for diversity and questioning is, is called a cult, right? So, so let's, let's say it this way. Next slide. See, the resurrected Christ is our solid center. And if it's the solid center, then this should free us to handle all sorts of difference and diversity. This should free us to discuss ideas without attacking people. So somebody said to me the other day, and they thought, I would, they thought I would celebrate this. I don't know why. But they said, hey, Shane, I was, reading some, I was reading some book. I can't remember what it was. And on page nine, they said something I disagreed with. So I'm not listening to anything else they say. I'm like, are you nine? Like, like perhaps they've had a thought that you need to have. Just what, what's it going to harm you? To Is it going to threaten the resurrected Christ position in the world to... To hear it out, like the level of panic, like I was really disheartened at the election. I, I was in um I was in Melbourne for the when when the election happened. And look, I, I'm glad I'm glad that Scott Morrison's party won. Okay, I, I, I fine. What what disheartened me was the level of panic that Christians were exhibiting about what would happen if he didn't win. Like I was, I was so, I was like, I'm serious. Oh God. Oh God. If labor gets in, they're going to, this was literally something said to me. If labor gets in, they're going to remove the plaque with the Lord's prayer on it from parliament house. And I'm said, so like, I don't, if, if the Lord's prayer is not active in someone's heart, taking it off a plaque on a wall, that's not going to do anything. And, And just, just a quick 40 second history of God. The God you serve overcame the primordial chaos and created beauty and order and creation as we see it. 
right? The, 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 the God you serve overcame the Egyptian empire. The God you serve overcame the Babylonian empire, Nebuchadnezzar. The God you served overcame the Assyrian empire and Tiglath-Pileser. The God you served overcame Antiochus Epiphanes, who did the abomination of the desolation by marching pigs into the Holy of Holies and spreading pig's blood throughout it. The God you serve overcame Pompey Magnus in 63 BC when he walked into the Holy of Holies and he said, if your God kills me, all of Rome will convert to Judaism and then nothing happened. The God you served overcame that. The God you served overcame the Roman empire, the dark ages, the renaissance i think he can handle the labor party are you kidding me right now like 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 how small like oh like you imagine god in heaven oh my me what will i do if the labor party gets in oh god bill shorten how will i cope i overcame nero what are you talking about and all we do and this is a problem for our kids all we do is the smaller we make God, the more bored they become. Like God's threatened by a different idea, really? Then he's not God. God's threatened by that idea? Not God then. Not God. Come on. Not God. Or, or remember, remember Jesus said, the kingdom of God is not observable. In other words, if you can see it, it's not kingdom. <laughs> it might be a result of kingdom, but Jesus is like, it's very, it's very important that we never call our experiences kingdom because as soon as we call our experiences kingdom, then anything not that is not kingdom. And actually God's involved in the whole thing. Um, these are things we got. Next slide. So, so how do we, what do we do with that eventually? What do we do with this? I think we have to acknowledge the dis-ease that the diversity or disagreement creates in us. Like when we read a new idea that wasn't what we were always taught, it's going to make us uncomfortable. And that, that, it's okay. Like we need to acknowledge that. Like, okay, that makes me uncomfortable. That's okay to say that. Like, that's, that makes me uncomfortable. But then there's two possibilities that are really bad. That someone's wrong and I need to round the troops to prove my point over theirs. Likely not. That's going to make you very boring. It's going to make you very, very boring. Um, like, likely not the case. And, and two, I will just separate myself and have nothing to do with the person causing the disease. And in that case, what happens is, is in 10 years, you come to someone and go, I'm just discouraged I'm not growing. Yeah, but that's because we haven't allowed any assimilation of new information to come into our life. We've taken ourselves too seriously instead of the master. Our task should be taken seriously, but not ourself. Like if, if we're walking out of here without being fully aware that our knowledge of God is so dreadfully incomplete that we have infinite amount of growth to go, then we're missing the point. Let, let's say it this way. Next slide. See, the problem is, is that sometimes disagreement is not what it appears to be. Sometimes disagreement is a poison that needs to be extracted. That's true. Some things are just, frankly, toxic. Um, sometimes disagreement, though, is the bud before the blossom. See, I, when I was a, a teenager, I, in the summer, I, I worked landscaping. It's where I decided to get a lot of education because I hated it. <laughs> and it. It was 42 degrees, 100% humidity, and when you're, when you're the 15 or 16-year-old, they put you on the whippersnipper, Okay. And it's very, it's, a, it's hard. I mean, your hands hurt. You're dragging this thing around. It's heavy. You walk around eight hours and 42 degrees with a whippersnipper. It's, it's not easy, right? And all you want to do is you want to be the guy on the mower because the mower guy gets to, gets to sit, right? And, of course, it doesn't hit you that he's 53 and that's where he is. But it, anyway, but it, it just, it's just at 16, you want to be that. And, um, and so, so, you, so the whippersnipper's job is to go around every building and get grass that the... Um, that the lawnmower can't get. And you get mad at the lawnmower guy because he inevitably leaves grass that he could have gotten. 
right? And you're going around. And we, we had this huge apartment complex that we had the contract for. It was so big, it took two crews two full days. There's two crews, eight hours, that's 16 hours times two. It was big, right? And my job for two full days is to walk around buildings and trees and getting grass that the, that the lawnmower guy couldn't get. And it's so boring and so horrible. And like when, 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 when people's animals go to the toilet and you hit it with the whippersnipper underneath the grass, it just, it just it's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's unbelievable. Anyway, anyway, so you, you, you just get bored. And so I came around the house and there was these tall purple weeds. And they were shocking. And I, and, and I just, right? 20 minutes later, the owner of the place comes out. He cut down my purple passion. He cut down my purple passion. I didn't. I, look, evidently, purple passions are these very expensive things that, um, that take a long time to grow up. And then when they, when they blossom, it's unbelievably beautiful, but only for a short period of time. And, and evidently, what I thought was a weed was actually the bud before the blossom. And it was, it, it, and it was quite expensive because it, it, it cost me a week and a half's pay to replace them. So I had to weed eat for a week and a half for free just to replace this lady's purple passions. You know? so, so it's a lesson I don't, I don't forget. But I, but I think personal growth like that. I think sometimes we instantly think something's a weed because it wasn't what we were always taught. And, and instead of wrestling with it and instead of allowing something to change us, what we end up doing is we eradicate it just before it has its thing in our life. And, and so we, we have to trust the risen Christ enough to know, wait a minute, hang on, we, we can discuss anything without threatening his place in our life, right? Next slide. Let's say it this way. There's four ways to assimilate new information. Here are the four ways. These are, this is a table metaphor. These are metaphors, not literal. <laughs> if someone brings new information to our table, first thing we could do is consume it all. That's the first action. I like that. I consume it the second thing we could do is see one thing we don't like about it and vomit it all up. So we go, ah, oh, no, no, that one. All that, that's fine, but that one thing, no, I'm going to vomit it all up. I'm going to vomit it all up. But the third thing we could do is tolerate it. So tolerate it would be, you know what? It's not too unlike us. We'll have a pinch of that. We'll, to we'll tolerate that. The fourth way is to accommodate it, which is, it's a little bit too unlike us, but we'll let it be on the same table and people can make their choice. It's a matter of personal conscience, right? So when someone brings us new information, we can consume it, vomit it, tolerate it, or assimilate it. And I would suggest that for us to grow, we have to deny all four of these. I think all four of these are rotten, and here's why. All four of these assume that we already know the truth and we get to be the judge of what we assimilate and what we don't. It, it assumes that we're already right and whatever I add or subtract is up to me because I'm already right and that'll stifle your growth. Actually, instead of judging new information, if we disciplined ourselves to be judged by it, we would change more. We would actually be more effective. I, I, I love this quote by Thomas Merton. He's a uh, a, a Catholic priest who's a genius. He says, disagreement and diverse interpretation is often the elixir that moves the former version of yourself to a better version. If the you from 10 years ago saw the you of today and did not think you were a heretic, then you're not growing. <laughs> so true. The reason you don't think you're a heretic today is because you grew incrementally. 
But if the you of 10 years ago saw the you of today with, without the context of all the little changes, you, you wouldn't be very happy with yourself. And if, and if you would be, then you're not growing. If you, if you want to test for this, find a recording of a message you did 15 years ago and listen to yourself without throwing up, right? It, it is like, did I actually say that? I, did, I, did I do that? Now, great teaching is not meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. It's meant to be wrestled with. So let's wrestle a little bit. Is this a weed or a budding blossom? That's the question. The thing I'm wrestling with, if, if, you're, not, if you're not wrestling at all, uh, wrestle. Like find, find a book to read that you don't agree with. I don't like to read books I totally agree with. I, th- I find it boring. I probably need to read more edifying, like uh, uplifting, you know. I probably need to read more uh, books of that nature. But I, I, find, I find reading history or reading you know, reading some philosophy or reading some theology that's not from my camp, I find it edifying because I can wrestle with it. I can, I can actually admit I don't get what they're saying there, and that's okay. That doesn't threaten Jesus, doesn't threaten me, doesn't threaten God's work in the world. It's, it's, it's actually okay. Is this a weed or a budding blossom? Let's say it this way. Do I ignore or escape disease to the point of stifling my own growth? Do I go, wait a minute, I, I just can't handle how uncomfortable that makes me, so I'm, I'm just not going to read. I'm going to ban that book. <laughs> ban the book. Christians started banning books. What are you, Hitler? Like, like we can't. We, yeah, my church, we don't read anything by that author. Oh, you've banned the book? You, what is that communicating to people? All it's going to do is make them go read it, and they won't tell you about it, right? And and they're not going to let you. They're not going to let you referee the wrestling with it, which is what you want. Um, do I set myself up as a filter of assimilation? In other words, do I see myself as the sole possessor of truth and any information or not information gets filtered through me? Or can I allow someone else to speak into my life? Is Christ the solid center? And if he is, then we shouldn't be threatened by ideas or thoughts. Or um, somebody, somebody gave me the other day a three-hour teaching by Jordan Peterson on seeing Genesis 1 entirely as wisdom literature. And I got to tell you, whether I agree with him or not doesn't matter. His application about what Genesis 1 means for how we live today was unbelievably compelling. And I thought, well, I need to wrestle with that. I need to, I, I, I need to, I'm going to have to listen to it about four times, and it was three hours long, but it, but, but it was, it was like, like, it's like a week's work. But the, but the ideas were, I had not considered certain things. I, I, I met someone this year who gave me a way to read the prodigal son that I'd never considered in my life. <laughs> it was Peter Rollins. So, so he, I, I was sitting at coffee with him, and he was like, can I? Can I run something by you? And he gave me a reading of the prodigal son, not to replace the other reading. See, I'm, I'm trained by a rabbi. Re- Jewish people, Jewish people, uh, Western white people approach the Bible with, I don't want to be wrong. Give me the one interpretation, the one right thing, the one right thing. Jewish people approach the Bible with, I don't want to miss out. You know, like, like oh, if you got a new reading, tell me. I want to add it to my diamond, you know. I want to, I want to add it to my arsenal of, of how to see the story. It makes it way more compelling, you know. And so, and so he wasn't giving me something to replace it as much as he was adding to it. I found it, whether I agree or not, doesn't matter. I found it brilliant um, because if Christ is the solid center, none of that should threaten us. Um, let, let's say it this way. Next slide. Can we trust the sinner's work in our lives to move us to a better version of what we're meant to be? That's how personal growth works. Thank you for joining us. The Bayside Christian Church community aims to transform our city and beyond with the life and power of Jesus Christ. 
If you want to know more or just keep in touch, check us out at www.basarchristianchurch.com.au or follow us on our social media sites at Basar Christian Church.